Alberta Premier Jason Kenney has announced his intention to resign as Premier and leader of the United Conservative Party in Alberta. So what is next for Conservatives in that province? I'm joined by Professor Ted Morton on the show to discuss. I'm Candice Malcolm, and this is The Candice Malcolm Show. everyone. Thank you so much for tuning into the program. So as you know, we covered the news event last week that Premier Jason Kenney has decided to step down after a leadership review that let's just say came in unfavorably for the Premier. He seemed to be caught a little bit off guard, as did the people around him. And he did what I think was the honorable thing, which is to step down to avoid future division in the party. On the whole, I think it is a bad thing for Alberta that Jason Kenney did not uh, succeed in this leadership review. I don't uh, agree with the idea behind the leadership review in the first place. But as I disclosed on the show, I'm not exactly a neutral observer. I once worked for Jason Kenney, and he remains a friend. Um, but I can try to take a step back and give an, an analysis of why I think he managed to lose control and why he lost. And I think it's important uh, for conservatives and, and for Canadians to understand those reasons and not to draw the wrong conclusions. Unfortunately, I think a lot of what's going on in the media right now are people drawing the wrong conclusions, saying that this was some kind of a populist uprising, um, that it was a bad kind of populism, and sort of blaming the people uh, for the fact that Jason is no longer the premier of the province. I think that, that the responsibility lands on the premier's shoulders and on his desk, uh, the people around him. There were a number of, of shortcomings. I think the, the way that they handled COVID was wrong. I think the, the way that they communicated their policies uh, wasn't wasn't the, the right way. And I think that there are a, a lot of important um, lessons that should be learned for conservatives going forward. So as I mentioned, I wanted to bring in someone who is a very astute observer of all things Alberta, someone who's very knowledgeable on everything to do with Alberta. And I'm talking about Professor Ted Morton. So Ted Morton is Professor Emeritus of Political Science at the University of Calgary. He's a former progressive conservative member of the Legislative Assembly in Alberta. And he is the author of uh, several books. His latest book co-authored um, is called Moment of Truth, How to Think About the Future of Canadian Politics. So Ted, thank you so much for joining the show. Hello, Candace. Good to be with you again. So let's just start off with the first obvious question. What, what happened? Why, why do you think that Jason Kenney uh, lost the confidence of his party? Well, there's no question that uh, <clears throat> the COVID uh, pandemic uh, was the main reason. I think most incumbents on both sides of the border had trouble uh, dealing with it and striking a balance that was acceptable to uh, the voters. In Alberta, I think it was particularly hard for a conservative premier, uh, given the the uh, composition of the uh, United Conservative Party. <clears throat> There's a large libertarian wing, which uh, did not want the uh, lockdowns. There's also a large, um, I'd call it older urban wing, and older people, of course, were more uh, vulnerable, uh, who wanted more lockdown. I think Jason tried to play it down the middle. And no normally in politics, playing down the middle is not a bad strategy. But in this case, the middle was only about 20 or 30% and the other 60 or 70% was were on the two wings. So didn't work. And uh, he was dealt some pretty bad cards and a couple he didn't play very well, but it was, uh, I think most unfortunate. Like you, I'm, I'm not neutral. I'm an old friend of Jason's and was very happy to see him become the premier of Alberta. 
Well, so one of the things that I heard a lot from True North uh, supporters in our audience was wondering why uh, no one in Canada did what Ron DeSantis did, the governor of Florida, where he sort of just went against the, the conventional wisdom that was being pushed by the elites and said, you know, in Florida, we're going to do things differently. We're not going to lock kids out of school. We're not going to force people to wear masks. And he just had a totally different approach. I think a lot of conservatives in Canada wished that there was a premier in Canada that was willing to do that. Jason Kenney seemed to potentially be well positioned um, to do that. And and at one point there was some hope, right? He came out really firmly against the idea of a vaccine passport. This was back in July. And then by September, he had, he had changed his, his student. Florida also has a, an uh, older than average population, a large elderly constituency. And yet Ron DeSantos managed to sort of thread that needle more successfully. Um, do, you, do you think that Jason was misguided in not trying to go down that path? Or do you think that that would have not been a good strategy in Canada? At least in Alberta, I think that would have backfired just as badly as going down the middle did for him uh, in the uh, in the cities. And again, remember, you know, Calgary and Edmonton, that's over half the population. And then you have four or five other large cities, medium-sized cities that would, you're up to 85% of the population. So um, it's not just... Uh, Cowboy Alberta. That it was very hard. The lockdowns were very hard in the rural areas in the small towns uh, because of the there are fewer services there to begin with, and when they suddenly are locked down or restricted, it was very very difficult. And uh, so there was a populist element to it. But again, I think if you look at the political demographics of Alberta, there was no there wasn't the the path that uh, DeSantis took in Florida wasn't there for Jason. So do you think that Alberta, I mean, it's interesting, I, I noticed that you did an interview with the Calgary Herald, you said that Kenny did what was best for the party in stepping down, um, and you said that it kind of wipes the slate clean, and that the prospects for the party are good. I, I sort of saw the opposite, because I see a party that's deeply divided, right? You have 51% versus 48.5% on the other side. Uh, I, I almost see the old divisions of the PC Wild Rose uh, coming back out. Do you think the party is 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 going to stay united, or do you think that 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 uh, it's gonna it's gonna fracture back along old lines? I think the division was as much personal as ideological. Uh, I said Jason drew some bad cards, but some of the cards he didn't play very well either, and. Um, Jason's political skills and political style, I think, was developed and, and honed in Ottawa. And a style that works in Ottawa um, doesn't work in, uh, did, and did not work for him in Alberta. And uh, so I think the division uh, was more personal than ideological. I think the candidates, plus, hopefully for all of us, the, uh, uh, the pandemic is moving into the background will no longer be front and center. I mean, basically, Jason was only in office for less than a year when all of a sudden this happened and it pushed all the other issues off, off the agenda. So at least in the last 12 months, uh, the Alberta budget is balanced again. Um, investments coming back, employments uh, rising, a lot of positive things happening in Alberta, plus, some interesting legislation passed by Jason, things that he promised to do and, and then followed through on those promises. So I tend to be optimistic. 
I like to fish and hunt. Fishermen are always optimistic. But uh, I think a lot of the division was personal, and I think uh, there will be uh, positive things going forward and that the candidates, there'll be disagreements, but uh, I'm optimistic. Uh, one of the criticisms I've seen, even from conservative writers, is uh, in the media, you know, people people coming out, pe- people who are long critics of Jason Kenney first coming out saying, uh, you know, we respect him and we like him. Um, but then on the other side, you have conservative analysts uh, really pointing to the conservative base and saying that the problem was this populist spirit in Alberta, that Albertans are ungovernable, um, that the rise of the oppositional mindset um, is to blame. I, I'm, I'm wondering if if you subscribe to this idea that that conservatives have become angry and oppositional, and that's why he's come down. Does does any of the blame fall on the conservative base, or or would you would you prefer to put push blame more towards Kenny himself and the people around him? Well, that uh, oppositionist mentality that you just described is definitely there. Uh, in the conservative uh, side of Alberta, but I think it's a minority position. Um, and I don't think it will, it will play a role in the, uh, in the leadership race, but I think any candidate that, that tries to focus, just cultivate that group uh, will not be successful. Right. I, I, I see what you're saying. What, one of the other things um, that's interesting, I mean, uh, you, you would never see a leadership review of a sitting uh, government official in, in other parties in other places in the country. Like, you know, uh, you, usually um, a, a leadership review would just be for a candidate who lost an election, not someone who brought in a historic majority government. And so, you know, considering what Jason Kenney did to you know, first unite the two, well, first become leader of the PPC party, vote, uh, unite these two parties, then run again for the leader of that party, then run in a general election. I mean, he he, he did so much for conservatives and for the province of Alberta. Um, even just the idea of why there would be a leadership review in, in the first place uh, confuses a lot of people, especially in Ontario, who might not be super familiar with this sort of political culture in Alberta. So I'm, I'm wondering if you could maybe help us understand why we were in this position where he was getting a review, even though he was a sitting premier with a majority government. Uh, It's highly unusual, but it wouldn't have happened unless Jason agreed to it. And I think Jason felt it had just become the divisions both within the party and within the caucus had gotten to the point where it was becoming difficult to uh, govern. And he still has another year, the party has another year to govern. So I think he hoped and he was optimistic. Uh, He was surprised by the results. I think he was quite confident that he'd be above 60%, which would be would have been enough to continue. And that's what he wanted. He was tired of all the uh, kind of squawking and infighting. He felt with the 60% uh, support rating, they, they could move forward. And uh, as I said, there are a lot of good things happening in Alberta right now. He could take credit for that and be well positioned to win the next election. Didn't happen. It's too bad. So uh, what's the party left with? I know uh, Danielle Smith, the former leader of the Wild Rose Party, has indicated she wants to run. Brian Jean, another former leader of the Wild Rose Party, has indicated that he wants to run. Um, What what do you see happening uh, with the party and its leadership at this point? I think there'll be a pretty vigorous uh, leadership race. Those are the two uh, obvious candidates. But uh, Minister Taves, the finance minister, 
I, I'm quite certain will be a candidate. Uh, he's done a very good job under very difficult circumstances for the past uh, three and a half years. And uh, he has a base. And he, he has the advantage of sort of avoiding the uh, Calgary-Edmonton uh, rivalry. He's not from either, uh, not from either uh, city. And, uh, so, and there'll, there'll be some other candidates as well. And so do you, do you see whoever, whoever wins, whichever sort of background they have, um, having the ability to keep this, this party, this juggernaut of very different kinds of conservatives and different kinds of Albertans, rural, urban, you know, there's, there's, there's lots written about the sort of changing demographics of Alberta. Do you think that whoever the next leader uh, will have, will have a, a difficult time keeping this party together? Well, I hope not. And I think not. Uh, maybe <clears throat> that's more hope than thought. But uh, I think, again, the, the response to COVID and the pandemic was very, very difficult for, I think, any government. It's particularly difficult for a conservative government. And it's particularly difficult for an Alberta conservative government uh, because of the tensions between the libertarian wing and the, the, well, certainly the older and more urban wing that wanted, uh, was hoping for protection from, from lockdowns. I think that's behind us now. Let's all hope it's behind us. And so I'm optimistic that uh, the candidates we've just identified can move past that, talk about the positive things they've done within Alberta uh, in terms of renewing the economy, getting the budget under control, but also pick up what Jason started, but then dropped, which is the whole fair deal panel, the panel that he struck uh, uh, Alberta. We had the referendum on equalization, abolishing equalization last fall, uh, over 60% voted for that. But then nothing, he, Jason did nothing with it. And I understand he felt that, that uh, it was not the right time because of COVID and, and, and public health issues. If those are behind us, I'm, I'm expecting what I'm certainly looking for in the leadership race are, are which one of these individuals uh, will step forward and say yes, uh, I will pick up the uh, the uh, fair deal panel report, uh, the so-called Alberta agenda, which uh, I was part of, good grief, almost 25 years ago. The inside joke is we're right, our timing just was really bad. So anyhow, I, I'm looking forward to that. And I actually think the potential with the right leader to find allies in, uh, not just in Saskatchewan, but possibly British Columbia, and I hope in, in Ontario as well. Another issue that Jason Kenney sort of spearheaded um, was the, uh, the the challenge to Bill C-69, the, the, the so-called no, no More Pipelines Bill um, that, that, that required all kinds of sociological reviews uh, in order to get major infrastructures uh, deals passed. We know that the uh, Alberta court just ruled that it was uh, unconstitutional. That'll probably get further uh, challenged. So do you think that Jason Kenney's departure uh, will hurt this specific uh, challenge and, and if it will hurt the energy sector more broadly? Well, that's an important question and, and there's no easy answer to that. Uh, very significant that the Alberta Court of Appeal, I think was a four to one decision as well. So strongly decision said, this is simply a uh, invasion of uh, provincial jurisdiction. And uh, certainly in Alberta back when the Constitution Act was done in 1982 uh, for 
Alberta Premier Peter Lougheed, but the other Western Premiers as well, and for Quebec, Section 92A, which very explicitly reasserts, reaffirms, and expands provincial control, provincial responsibility for the development of natural resources, that was central. Uh, Lougheed and the others would not have agreed to the Charter of Rights and all that other, everything else that happened then, if there had not been that very strong and explicit affirmation of provincial jurisdiction over the development of natural resources. Now, since 2015 under Trudeau, that's been under constant attack and um, very much to the detriment of the economies and the people and the families in Alberta and Saskatchewan. Uh, right now, because of the terrible things that have happened in the Ukraine and the global oil shortage, prices are up again. And so people are going back to work. But, but again, I think that's a change that makes me optimistic, not for Alberta, but for Canada. Suddenly, energy security is front and center, uh, not just for Canada and the United States, but for Western Europe, for the whole world. And Canada, and specifically Alberta and Saskatchewan, are very well positioned to play a very important role in uh, in the energy security, the balancing of climate change concerns with energy security. Energy security was completely ignored for the past decade and we're paying the price for it now, particularly Europe's paying the price. They're not gonna forget this time. And so again, that's an opportunity, not just for Alberta, but I think for all of Canada. And I think uh, conservative leaders, uh, not just, again, not just in Alberta, uh, we are, conservatives are the party of opportunity of free enterprise and so forth. So I'm, 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 that's another reason I'm, I'm trying to be optimistic going forward. Well, that, that's great. I, th I think you're right that energy security has come to the forefront, but I still feel a little skeptical of the idea that, you know, a government like the Trudeau government that would pass a bill like C-69, to me, that's a red flag to any investors. I mean, you know that uh, the, the people in charge have, have openly said, you know, they're all gathering at the World Economic Forum right now, talking about how they want to transition away from energy. They, they don't want oil and gas to be uh, a necessity in the future. Uh, so so if you're a company, why would you why would you put your investment into building a project that may take five, 10 years to get off the ground uh, for a commodity that the government and officials and elites openly say they, they don't want anything to do with it. And, and they're creating legislation to make sure that we that we that we're not reliant on it in the future. Uh, do, do you think that Canada can still attract investment? Do you think that that businesses and, and I'm talking about big oil companies would still be willing to come to Canada to build this kind of critical infrastructure, given the rhetoric that we still hear from the people in charge? Well, we'll see. And, and the question is, who are going to be the people in charge? Unfortunately, we're probably stuck with Justin and his NDP friends now uh, for another uh, three, three and a half years. That's bad. Um, but with uh, new leadership out of Alberta, the possibility uh, be interesting to see what uh, I, I'm assuming Ford is going to win in Ontario. And that I would hope he would step forward on the energy file because Ontario benefits very much from uh, a strong Alberta Western Canadian energy sector. Uh, even Quebec, uh, you might have seen that uh, ironically, Premier Kenny and several of his ministers were in Washington just the week before the leadership review in front of a Senate Energy Committee, but there were also representatives from Quebec there and the federal government talking about US-Canada uh, cooperation on the, energy, on the energy front. And again, 
you know, there's 90% of the talk was about energy security, only 10% was about climate change and renewables. So I think there's a, a new reality uh, out there. Uh, I think people have heard that everyone's hoping that, uh, that uh, the woke will wake up, right? <laughs> now that we've seen what's not just what's happened to the Ukraine, but what the position that's put Europe in, where they're basically uh, blackmailed uh, by Russia because they become dependent on Russian oil and gas. Um, we don't want, Canada doesn't want that, the US doesn't want that, Western Europe doesn't want it, most of Asia doesn't want it. Uh, so there's, what happened in the Ukraine isn't just going to affect the Ukraine, Russia, and Europe, it's going to affect the whole world. And, Energy security is going to be front and center for at least the next decade, I think on a par with climate change. And well, we'll see. Uh, in the end, voters will decide. But with $5 gas, uh, fertilizers at all time high, wheat prices hit a new historical high last week, food is very expensive. Uh, I think you could see a lot of political changes on both sides of the border uh, in electing parties and leaders who are going to say, energy security and getting the price of energy back into affordable realm is a priority. Absolutely, it should be. A uh, final question about Jason Kenney, and that is that uh, I think I think when he was running for leader and he was he was, um, you know, trying to establish himself as someone who was who was firmly on, on the side of Albertans, one of the things, the expectations that Albertans had was that he was really going to fight uh, Justin Trudeau. He was going to um, demand more of a fair deal. And I think people thought that there would be more of an adversarial relationship. I think a lot of people in Alberta hoped that there would be more of an adversarial relationship. That, that didn't really come to fruition. I think Jason tried to be a, a much more diplomatic um, to Trudeau, and I think that angered uh, many conservatives. I'm wondering if you can comment on whether you think that was a strategic mistake and, and, and whether you think that uh, Kenny was able to have an influence on Trudeau sort of behind the scenes. Uh, no, I think you're absolutely right that his, uh, the fact that he did not follow through on the, not just the campaign promises, he started. I mean, the fair deal panel, that was the follow through. But then nothing happened after the fair deal panel. We did have the referendum on equalization, but then that was a card that certainly I expected him and many others expected him to play in Ottawa. We didn't hear anything about that after October. Um, so yes, that contributed to his unpopularity among a large sector of the conservative party. But again, he was dealt a pretty, he, he dealt some bad cards. If he had continued down that path on the uh, fair deal and those issues, provincial policing, pension plan, and all of that, in the middle of COVID, um, that would not have played well, I think, certainly in the urban areas. So again, my optimism is that with that issue now off to the side, the next leader with strong support from Alberta and strong support from other parts of Canada is going to make energy security uh, a key issue. And remember, Alberta has, Canada has the third largest reserves in the world. And the first and second are in places that nobody wants to do business with. It certainly wouldn't be their first choice to do business with um, uh, OPEC in the Middle East. 
That's a good point as well. Uh, you, you mentioned uh, a few minutes ago about how uh, you don't think that uh, people in Alberta, Premier, former Premier uh, Lougheed, would have even signed on to the charter um, had they known uh, some of the things that were going to play out. You had a pretty devastating piece in the National Post a few weeks ago about the charter. We know that we just celebrated the 40th anniversary. And uh, I, I wanted to ask you about it while I have you. Um, you, you wrote after 40 years, the charter is still one of the worst bargains in Canadian history. So I'm wondering if you can explain uh, to the viewers why uh, you, you don't have a lot of uh, faith in that document. I think one of the cornerstones of, of Canada is our federal structure, which allows, you know, we're this huge country, 10 different provinces plus the territories, huge, huge country, relatively small population and the provinces are all different and the question is you know do you want to be governed by people who live and work in your province who, who go to the capital or do you want to be governed by people that you've never heard of they've never heard of you they live in Ottawa again at the risk of being politically incorrect at least for those of us in the west everybody in Ottawa who in the bureaucracy there is bilingual we're not very bilingual out west um Federalism, the ability for the different provinces to be self-governing, I think, has been a, a big part of the success of Canada. The Charter changed that, and, and Trudeau did it on purpose, that he brought in a set of new rules enforced by ultimately by one body, the Supreme Court of Canada, which the Prime Minister gets to make all the appointments to. Six of the nine judges come, three from Quebec, three from Ontario appointed by the prime minister, uh, they make the rules now. And now, you know, I was around uh, in the 80s when this happened. Historically, the Supreme Court of Canada avoided policymaking and judicial activism. There was a deference to the elected governments, but that all changed in the first decade. It hasn't stopped now. So in effect, what the charter has become is uh, what I said in the, uh, in the piece, that is disallowance in disguise. Remember, at the, again, at Confederation in 1867, the McDonald wing of the founders wanted a much, much stronger central government. And they gave these powers of disallowance and reservation to the federal government. Within 30 years, those fell into disuse because they were simply inconsistent with the nature of Canada, our diversity, our size, and everything else. And so this ability for, the, for Ottawa to reach out and veto provincial legislation they don't like was taken away. Unfortunately, the charter has brought that back because the judges have interpreted the charter in such a loose way. They can basically get any conclusion they want out of almost every charter case. And of course, then there's the court challenges program, which I mentioned, which funds the groups that liberals like who want legislation. Uh, liberal legislation. To Stephen Harper's credit, he he defunded, he stopped funding the court challenges program. But as soon as Trudeau came back in, he started the funding again. So the liberals fund the groups uh, on the left, the woke group, the identity politics people, the the uh, the people who can't win can't win these political victories through elections, provincially. But the court challenges program gives them the money. They go to the court, they go to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has been appointed by prime ministers and they get the policy result they want. 
So from a point of view of federalism, it's, it's really disallowance and disguise. And it's been, uh, again, a, a really bad deal for those of us who think that all Canadians are best served if the decisions we have to live with are made by people in the provincial capital who come from our neighborhoods, who understand our problems, who know about you know, shortage of schools, water issues, traffic issues, employment issues, uh, job issues, uh, housing issues, not people in Ottawa who've certainly, again, out West, people who've never even been out West, uh, they're, and I'm including in this both the bureaucrats uh, and, the, and the Supreme Court judges, uh, that's, Canada did better before that. I think we can do better again. And uh, I'm, I'm hoping with, uh, well, we haven't talked about the federal leadership race, Conservative Party leader, but I'm certainly hoping uh, some of the candidates there will embrace the idea of a more decentralized uh, Canada going forward. Well, so uh, I recently had um, Brian Peckford on the, on the show, and he was obviously one of the um, signatories, a former premier of Newfoundland, and he, he criticized your piece in the National Post with a letter to the editor. And it, the argument that he made on the show, I don't want to mis, misquote him or anything, but he basically said that the, um, the letter of the charter, the, the, the words written in the charter are not being properly applied at this point. He, he pointed out a few um, key phrases that he felt uh, were being, uh, that th- the reason that, that the charter is sort of in disarray and, and it's not upholding our liberties in the way it should is because of um, the lack of adherence to what was, what was intended in the charter, and, and you, you talked about it in your piece a little bit about how the federal cabinet chooses the Supreme Court. You know, you, you mentioned how these, these, these Supreme Court justices don't understand Alberta. They, many of them haven't even been to Alberta. In the U.S., there's a culture of, uh, you know, a, a Republican president specifically appointing conservative judges who will have a more literal uh, reading of the, of the um, Constitution to ensure that, that, that the conservative values are upheld. Um, you know, you mentioned Stephen Harper and how he, he eliminated this program and Trudeau brought it back in. One of the criticisms I've heard of, of Harper is that he didn't appoint conservative justices and that, that we, if, if we had that culture of, of making sure that the people that conservative governments appoint to the bench are going to have a, a more literal reading of the charter, it might be better. The charter itself isn't, isn't that bad. It's just the way it's been interpreted. I wonder if you can comment on that. I think one weakness of the Harper decade was that he did not use to full advantage his appointment power to the Supreme Court. And there's some explanations for that. Um, more generally, back to Peckford's letter, he's right. The premiers, the provincial premiers, of which he was an important player, they put in the notwithstanding clause. The notwithstanding clause allows the provincial government or the federal government to say if if the court makes a decision striking down one of their laws, that they think the decision is either wrong as a matter of legal interpretation or an unacceptable policy, you use the notwithstanding clause and the decision still rests with the provincial government. But that was there, section 92A, not in the charter, but also part of the package, uh, provincial uh, control uh, over uh, natural resource. That's all there but it's been watered down and distorted by, I would argue, I would agree with him, judicial misinterpretation. So I guess you could say he's right that the 
what what happened what's happened in the 40 years since 1982 is because of misinterpretation but i guess my comeback would be yeah that's the reality we're living with and it's been bad and uh going forward we have to deal with that reality and 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 fight to change it and uh get back to a different different types of judges on the court we haven't talked about that but also provincial premiers that uh and and hopefully a a prime minister who doesn't think all every every problem has to be solved in, in ottawa you know the one size fits all approach that the liberals and the ndp seem to like right ted well i appreciate your time final question for you since you mentioned it uh, what are your thoughts on the conservative leadership race uh, as as an albertan do you feel like alberta uh, issues are being properly addressed, and and you have hope with this batch of candidates uh, that that one of them will be able to beat Justin Trudeau. Uh, I'd like to think so. I, I think uh, it would be no surprise to you or your listeners that uh, my favorite is Pierre. Uh, I've known him for a long time, and uh, have appreciated his outspokenness as a uh, member of parliament, and uh, so I'll be supporting him in in the leadership campaign as well. But uh, I think he'll be a voice for energy security. I think they all will. I don't think that I'd be surprised if, uh, if, um, if only, if only uh, Pierre is strong on that issue. And I think provincial elections, federal elections, both sides of the border, Europe, I think, remember, voters are also consumers and cons- consumers and, ho- and homeowners and house buyers. And right now, Consumers are getting hosed badly, particularly your generation, the younger generation. People like me, hell, I get a CPP check now. I got a pension. You know, I, I'm okay. Uh, and I bought, I bought a, I bought a house, you know, for under one hundred fifty thousand dollars in Calgary, 1982. I sold it three years ago for almost a million dollars. So, voters are consumers, and particularly your generation. I'm optimistic are going to say. What party is going to build a stronger, more reliable, forward-looking economy for myself and my kids? And I'd like to think that's going to be a conservative, United Conservative Party and Alberta and the, and, uh, the Conservative Party of Canada in Ottawa. Okay, well, yeah, I, hopefully with Pierre, but I'll, I'll support whoever wins. Well, I, I think that's a very optimistic tone uh, to leave the interview on, um, Ted. I really appreciate your time. I forgot to mention you're the former um, former Minister of, of Energy in Alberta and the former Finance Minister as well. So we really appreciate uh, your time. I, Thank I you have so all the scars to show for it. <laughs> <laughs> Live to tell about it. All right. That's Dr. Ted Morton. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm Candace Malcolm, and this is The Candace Malcolm Show.